Welcome to Reinventing Nerds. Dr. Joni Cannell shares communication strategies for technical people. She shares her own stories of learning to communicate and brings in other nerds and experts to show you how to interact with people in a way that's comfortable for you. And now, here's your host, the uniquely qualified engineer-turned-psychologist, Dr. Joni Cannell. Hello, and welcome to Reinventing Nerds. Today, we have a special guest. His name is Mike Kimball, and Mike is an attorney, and he has worked for 25 years as an attorney and does, I guess you would say, deals and legal issues for companies in the venture capital space as well as the tech space. And he has a really interesting background, a bit of an eclectic path getting to where he is at now. And so hopefully he'll tell us a little bit about that as well as some interesting things for the nerds who are listening on how to be better communicators. So let's take a big welcome for Mike. Hi, Mike. Hi, Joni. Thanks for having me. It's, it's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Oh, I do too. I, I've actually really enjoyed talking to you and uh, love your stories. So I, I want to give you an opportunity to share those with our listeners. And I mean, I was actually sharing some stories about you with my husband last night about the Navy and being in the submarines and all. So, so how did you get to where you're at now? Tell us your eclectic background. So as a kid, I always had some fascination with airplanes, which was pretty understandable because my dad had one. And one of my first memories is in a little wind-up airplane. I also had a fascination with submarines and I'm not really sure why. Um, when I was in college, I spent two summers working um, on the space program for the space shuttle and the GPS satellite program. And uh, I graduated from college with a, a bachelor's degree in chemistry and ended up, as you might expect, in Southern California with job offer from a couple of different oil companies to go work in the oil fields in Bakersfield, which mm -hmm. really didn't excite me much. So I went and talked to a, a Navy recruiter and... Uh, as soon as he found out that I had a technical degree and was eligible for the, the nuclear program, he got out his little bottle of magic pixie dust. And that was the last I ever thought about flying for airplanes and uh, airplanes for the Navy and found myself on a nuclear submarine here in San Diego. Mm. Um, and, you know, there were parts of it that were very interesting. Um, the, the crew was absolutely wonderful. A lot of camaraderie there. Um, very sharp, motivated people. And of course, you know, when you're underway for 90 days at a time and 200 days a year, there's also quite a bit of boredom. Um, so after a few years here in San Diego, the Navy wanted me to go back and teach students how to operate the nuclear reactors in Idaho. And I did that for two and a half years and decided to get out. I didn't really want to go back to sea again, particularly since my daughter came along while we were up there. And uh, would have loved to have come back to San Diego, but at the time there were just no jobs here. And so mm -hmm. went to Silicon Valley and um, was hired to turn around a gases and chemicals plant that uh, supplied the wafer fab industry, all the chip makers that at the time were largely in Silicon Valley. And so I, you know, I did a turnaround, I turned the facility around, kind of worked myself out of a job, but also, at the time, all the wafer fabs were moving out of California for reasons of cost and hazardous materials, and I really didn't want to move. Um, 
So I thought about an MBA or a law degree and decided a law degree would be more flexible and interesting and went back to law school and came back up to Silicon Valley and bounced around doing a couple of things. Um, got involved with a couple of companies that ended up being acquired and shuffled around. And then I had most interesting experience. I'd met a friend and we were water ski buddies with our families. Both of us take our families out and go water skiing. And one day we decided we're going to go to Lake Shasta and we're walking out of Costco with these two big, huge carts full of food. And he says, Hey Mike, my company's going public tomorrow. First thing they're going to do is hire a lot of people here. Talk to the VP of HR Her names, Don. And he shoves this, this cell phone in my face. And so I made an appointment to go back up there. And after the house boating trip and I got hired, I was the first attorney hired by the general counsel. Um, and in a year, we grew the company from 300 to 3,600 people and two attorneys to a legal department of about 30. And along the way, um, a colleague introduced me to the second general counsel at Yahoo, and he hired me in an executive legal position. And I stayed there for, for six years until I left to hang out my own shingle. And so that's pretty much where I've gotten to. Um, you know, was it was uh, living up in the Bay Area until two years ago. And, you know, these days in the tech and legal world, nobody really wants to see their attorney. So <laughs> for some personal reasons, I just moved down here. Um, so, and yeah, I, I say I just absolutely love San Diego. So you have been intimately involved with tech in a variety of ways, ranging from underwater to uh, in the cloud, uh, all over the place here. So, um, and now you um, help companies or help people uh, fund uh, their uh, their ventures here in a legal capacity or what is it that you're doing? Tell us a little bit more. So my clients are either startup companies or mm -hmm. small venture capital firms. And so I do formations, financings and mm -hmm you know, small M&A deals, as well as the technical uh, contracts between high-tech companies. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I've got uh, three or four uh, small VC funds that are all Yahoo alums. How did they come about? Tell us, like, when you were working there, how did you get to know these folks? Um, well, it was a really interesting place to work from a legal perspective because, you know, most companies are pretty narrowly focused. You know, if you look at a, a medical device company, they probably make one or two or three medical devices. Um, you know, software companies tend to focus on certain things. But Yahoo, you know, by the way they grew up as a consumer-based ad revenue-focused company in the late 90s, um, the atmosphere was really one of, hey, let's try this, throw it up against the wall and see if it sticks. And so there were something like 130 different business units all of them consumer focused. And so there was this broad view of broad range of legal issues that you'd never see in any other company. And, you know, back at the time, I mean, this was a long time ago, Yahoo was still cool and respected. And so we could attract some really serious people from, you know, we had several people from the Department of Justice. We had a couple people from the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, it was just a fascinating place to learn a lot about practicing law. 
Wow. Yeah, that is interesting. And I bet you some of those folks would love to be up there now in Silicon Valley <laughs> doing some of this work. Um, so let me ask you, um, you've got folks now who are part of the, the mafia, you said, so they're all post Yahoo. It's like a great place to get your network. So much of Silicon Valley is like that. You work at one company and all these people move on and then you have connections all around, right? I mean, that, those are the, some of the folks that you're working with now. Yeah, they, you know, my colleagues at, uh, at Yahoo and the previous company, Commerce One, have migrated around. They've gone to Google, to Facebook, mm -hmm. um, WhatsApp, DocuSign, um, Salesforce. It's just, it's kind of amazing. Yet they're starting up new ventures as well, or they have the capital to do that? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, the crowd at Yahoo was really pretty young, and mm -hmm. the people that were there at an early day, made, you know, a great deal of money. And when they left either, you know, right after the dot-com crash or a few years later when Yahoo had another downturn, um, they were way too young to, to quit, although they had enough money to retire. And so many of my colleagues have started, started our work at VC firms or mm -hmm. gone out and started new companies. Okay. But you've heard so about serial entrepreneur yeah. There's a lot of folks that have, you know, two, three, and four exits. Huh. You know, that's interesting, mate, because, I mean, you've had this experience at big tech, right, up in uh, Yahoo and, and other companies you've worked for, and, and now you're dealing mostly with startups, right, these smaller companies. What do you see as some of the differences, and especially in terms of the leadership, you know? And, yeah. Well, when I started at Yahoo, you wouldn't have think, thought it was a small company, but it was only about 3,500 people worldwide. Right. Um, so it really felt like a small company. And Commerce One before that, when we started there, 300 people, it was a small company. And I think that one of the things that happens as a company gets bigger is unless you have a very enlightened um, HR department and the, the C-suite is bought into it, it just becomes natural for more decisions to get made by committee than by leaders. And that slows things down. And, and mm -hmm. of course, um, you know, Yahoo had so many incredibly talented people. It was always a question of, you know, what of, of, of these hundred things, which ones are we going to go do? So, yeah, I, I can imagine. That's so interesting. Uh, I was just actually in a meeting um, earlier at, with the same issue of the growing pains and you're talking about the committee versus the leaders. Uh, it's a really good point to these companies that are growing a little bit is realizing that people have to have um, leadership uh, to take control of things, make decisions, but also be empowered to do so. Right. I mean, I think. Well, empowered to do so. And I think they, they really need good listening skills. Mm. You know, when, when companies are pitching to a venture capitalist, a lot of the, the decision that the, if, if you had to pick one thing that the VC is going to say, I'm going to bet on this, it's the, it's the founder. Have they had a successful exit? Um, does their vision hang together? Is it coherent with the business model? And is the founder coachable? And coachable really comes down to good listening skills. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So what do you see like in terms of the failures? What happens there? Um, I think a couple things. One, we all do 
whatever happens to be, we always do it better the second time than the first time. I don't remember if you remember the first time you went to a traffic light in a car when you got your driver's license, but I remember mine. <laughs> um, and so that's why if you have a founder that's had a successful exit, it's, it's much, much more de-risked than a first-time first time founder. And I, I think that the most common thing I see is, I mean, in high tech, the technical problem almost always gets solved. It's not like biotech where you may go through the stage three trials and the FDA denies approval. Um, but startups run out of money and they do that either because they didn't manage their spending right and lost confidence of the VCs or they didn't get the business plan right and the VCs don't want to fund, fund a follow-on round. And I think one of the, the most common ways that I see is that when you get very technical people who are ideal to lead, you know, if it's two people in a garage, mm -hmm. they probably both need to be pretty technical, at least in the high tech world. And if they don't have a deep understanding of how important sales is and hire somebody relatively soon that's got, you know, some serious ability in the sales world, they're going to struggle. The, the companies that I've seen really make it. I've, I've had one unicorn and one near unicorn. They're all people that jumped on the sales bandwagon early. Interesting. So uh, what is, I mean, aside from the like complete obvious here, so what is sales doing that, that the technical people aren't doing? Well, sales is a very valuable skill. And I mean, I can negotiate well, but I'm not a salesperson. Mm -hmm. And Technically, you know, most engineers are not salespeople either. So there's a there's a true art to, you know, getting doors open and getting deals made, as well as somebody that's done it for 15 or 20 years has a incredible Rolodex to help get some of those doors open. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I um, have a client now here in in the area and they just have an amazing sales team. They just I don't know how they do it, but they just generate a lot of deals. So that's interesting. So how does the technical leader realize uh, within themselves that they need help and they need to get the sales folks in there? Well, I think that's a really personal question. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, I could, I, mean, I really can't go and talk about specific people that I've seen. I mean, right. I, I can say that uh, one of the most fun, the, the unicorn I had, I got on with them. I was their first attorney and, I got on with them and there were four people in a little space in New York City and their CEO had a technical, I think a computer science degree from Princeton. And he just knew how to sell and how to negotiate. And it was just so much fun because he just, I mean, you know, the power of no, when you don't want to give up a big position is really powerful. And the CEO says, no, we can't do that. Um, it was amazing to watch him close deals not give up on a big commercial point. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Instead of saying yes all the time. Right. Yeah. Huh. Um, so let me let me hear what the statistics are. Maybe not like in terms of overall, but what's the rule of thumb in terms of how many startups fail that you see? So I think if you take 10 startups, um, you're fortunate. One of them will be a spectacular success, you know, mm -hmm. 
north of 500 million exit, or you know maybe even that rare unicorn. Um, one of them will probably have a pretty good exit. Um, you know, not spectacular, but maybe 100 million or so. And you probably have um, one company that has some interesting technology and don't seem to be on the road to commercializing it. And maybe their VCs or somebody they know introduced them. They, there's what you know is an aqua hire where company just really wants the technology and the, the people, but not so much the customers. And then, you know, there's probably three or four of them that they just simply don't get follow on funding and go out of business in two years or so. Mm -hmm. So what's your role in all this? How are you helping to make these uh, deals happen? Well, when you do it for a long time, you, I mean, the, the issues are by and large the same. You don't see too many new issues. We're not, you know, the legal profession is mm -hmm. not, uh, you know, developing fusion reactors or <laughs> supersonic airplane. Um, so you just see a way that a lot of things get handled. It makes you more efficient. And, you know, when you're somebody like me that understands the value of getting things done, um, instead of being obstinate about, you know, form over substance, I mean, you know, arguing about where the comma should go or exactly how a clause is mm -hmm. worded mm -hmm. instead of substantive matters, um, I can help clients get things done very quickly and cost effectively. And I'm also really good at uh, help getting sales deals closed. Oh, tell me more about that. So um, when I got hired at that 300 person company, Commerce One, our general counsel was a guy that liked to do big mergers and acquisitions deals. Mm -hmm. He came out of the corporate group at Wilson Sonsini and he didn't really like the the, the sales process. It was just a little too slippery and so forth for him. So he gave it to me. And, you know, as soon as he turned it over to me, all the salespeople came down and, you know, crowded into my office and wanted me to do all their work. It was kind of a disaster. So I got together with the SVP of Worldwide Sales and he had a sales op team. We got together with the controller and hashed out a process and really got things smoothed out. And once you build that trust with a sales team, they're all about it because, you know, they just want to get their stuff done. And if they trust you to get your, get their stuff done and not do stuff that slows things down or puts their commission at risk, it's a great, it's a great working relationship. I and mean, some of the people I've worked with on sales teams are the, you know, best folks I've ever worked with. You know, Mike, one of the things I'm sort of reading between the lines here, and, and, and I'd love for you to correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm hearing that uh, a lot of this is really good process. You know, if you set up a good process and, and these processes aren't like ultra unique either. They're like, it's pretty standard. You know, you've got to have sales involved. Um, how you put together a deal is, you know, not entirely different for every single um, deal here. Um, but so many people go in uh, thinking that everything is unique. I mean, I see this over and over again, like our company, our people, every, you know, we're just so special. We have to do things our way. And I'm, I'm sort of reading between the lines, like maybe is maybe the obstinate part of like getting a little bit out of that and saying, okay, let's just put some standard practices in place that might help us actually move forward. You know, I think that's really true. I wouldn't want to say that companies aren't unique within their mm -hmm. core competency. Mm -hmm. Um, but in terms of business processes, 
you know, look, the, the controller or the CFO at every company is going to be very similar to any other CFO or controller. Mm-hmm. And the sales process, I mean, you know, so, some, some products have a very short sales cycle. Sometimes it's, you know, particularly if it's uh, business to consumer. Um, but yeah, trying to do things uniquely just really doesn't work. Um, and, you know, I think one of the, one of the places where I have some really unique experiences that I've worked with and, um, you know, negotiated with some of the smallest and some of the biggest companies in the world. Mm. And you have to remain flexible because if your potential customer is bigger than you, you have to get used to getting pushed around a little bit, you know, arguing over whose contract you're going to use is a loser. <laughs> yeah. So, Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I, and I agree there, we were talking about some of the uniqueness about the company would be their innovation, their intellectual property, but you know, the business processes, are probably, you know, why reinvent the wheel always, you know, in terms of, of especially the legal as well. So uh, realizing that uh, perhaps getting over yourself and maybe even taking the ego out of the way on some of this would be an important step. Have you seen any challenges around that? Well, at Commerce One, our motto was uh, hungry, humble, and smart. Mm. And I thought that was brilliant. Um, and I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. One of the things that I've noticed about founders is most of them just do not have the ability to contemplate failure. Um, and I think that level of perseverance is very helpful in many, many startups. Um, but along with that comes some ego. And so, you know, using the good part of that perseverance and pushing away the that part of the ego that gets in the way can be challenging. Yeah, how to separate that out. That's really interesting. Yeah, the psychological research shows too that uh, a positive outlook is key among entrepreneurs. But uh, you're right, the uh, infallible, um, you know, that uh, overconfidence, you have to have that fine line of the balance there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The things like yeah. I would really love to see would be more coaching of founders. I think uh, I think that might be really helpful. Yeah, what would you coach them on if you if you were to coach founders or have somebody coach them on? <laughs> well, I think it's probably you know one of the things you'd want to do is go into the company and and uh, do a three hundred and sixty evaluation of you know the entire leadership team or mm-hmm. you know, if it's eight people in the company, do the whole company and see what the strengths and weaknesses are. Well, that's the way I do it. That's the way we always start out. Yeah, that's great. I mean, first of all, finding out where you can leverage those strengths and also what gaps you have and maybe where you need to hire some more talent in those areas too. Yeah, interesting. Wow, I love it that uh, you have all that level of insight from um, peeking in to see what's going on in these companies from the outside as well as having been there yourself. So yeah, I've always uh, been super curious about stuff. Uh-huh. I remember getting into trouble as a kid from taking something apart to see how it worked and not being able to put it back together. Oh, that's a true engineer, right? Taking it yeah. all apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
so hopefully it wasn't stuff that your family was actually using or, or was it <laughs> like the car? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't stuff that important, but, uh, you know, it all worked out. <laughs> we always had more than one phone. Okay. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh -huh. I'm starting to see some insights here. All right. So, all right. So who are your people um, who would want to reach out to you and why would they call you? So let's, let's hear a little bit about your, your client. Um, a CEO or a CFO, um, mm -hmm. whether they're pre-company formation or post. Um, you know, I think one of the other things we haven't talked about is that, you know, these engineers are really bright. Mm -hmm. um, they're probably brighter than me. They could completely do what I do for a living but they haven't been doing it for many, many years. Okay. And so you find people that have taken shortcuts to forming a company and things have gotten done wrong. And that can, it, it's always more expensive to fix something than it is to do it right the first time. Um, mm -hmm. And I would say that, uh, you know, when, when a company starts the commercialization stage, um, it's oftentimes a lot easier to work with um, a solo practitioner because they're generally far more responsive than a, a large firm mm -hmm. and with no overhead, they, their rates are most likely lower. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm thinking for, uh, the smaller companies, that would be a real big advantage too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As well as, um, you know, in California, if you've done any work for a company, every attorney in your firm has a conflict against me. <laughs> That's true. Company. So, you know, if you call me and say, hey, can you represent me? I've got this deal coming up with, say, you know, LiveRamp. I know if I've ever represented LiveRamp, I just say yes or no. Okay. It takes days for these big firms to run through conflicts, Jax. Huh. Yeah. Um, so I know what you mean. Yeah. I've been working with law firms for a while. So, uh, yeah, got it. Um, excellent. So how can people reach you if they want to reach out to you? Uh, well, they can use that googly thing and Google my name. Mm -hmm. um, Google Michael Kimball, an attorney. I come up in LinkedIn. I think my web page is up there uh, pretty high, mm -hmm. uh, which is, by the way, uh, KimballESQ.com. Mm -hmm. And on my web page is my phone number. Right. ESQ for the Esquire, for the folks who aren't as familiar with that. That's what lawyers are called um, here in the States. Um, you know, I also wanted to plug your website for a second because one of the things on there that I thought was particularly useful was uh, your blog, um, that you have articles up there, for example, on the importance of the sales process, right? I think that's what, uh, one of them there too. So you've mentioned that in your uh, discussion today, but if people want to read more about that, they can go to your website and read it as well. Yeah, that, that article is titled How an Attorney Can Help Close Sales Deals Dash Curiously. Um, yeah. A little story about Commerce One and, mm -hmm. you know, the leadership of the, the, sales, the sales team and I were incredibly successful at putting together a process that worked and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's not necessarily the first thing you think of is talking to your lawyer about sales, but I think you've got a, a really compelling reason to do that. No, I every time I get a new client, I've got to work down to beat down their preconceptions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Well, excellent. Any last words of advice to some of these folks who are uh, starting out companies and uh, thinking about uh, moving to the next step? Yeah, talk to everybody you know. Ask, ask. Uh, you know, networking is incredible, incredibly powerful. Um, mm -hmm. Talk to people about what they think about your business plan, the technical hurdles. Um, it's hard to get too much advice. And here in San Diego, everybody's incredibly collaborative. So it's, it's much easier here than other places to get people to give you good advice. Oh, that's great to know. Well, thank you, Mike. Thanks for being a guest on Reinventing Nerds. Well, thank you, Johnny. This was great. It was fun. Yeah, and thanks to all our listeners and viewers. Um, and you can find us on reinventingnerds.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And we look forward to seeing you next time. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Reinventing Nerds and encourage you to apply what you learned to help you communicate better. For a free consultation with Joni to see how she can help you further, please visit ReinventingNerds.com. Until then, embrace your inner nerd and remain true to yourself while you develop your communication strategies.